Open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And what we'll do is we'll back up to chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. We'll start there and we'll read down to chapter 5, verse 6. Raise your hand if you do not have a copy of the sermon notes, and Nolan, he'll get you a copy. Everybody's going to need a copy of the sermon notes as we begin to work our way down through these high priest passages. Very important passages, very helpful passages, and we'll take our time to go down through them. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. And I'll read all the way down to chapter 5, verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest is taken from among men, is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof we ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, as he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, today we are going into a new chapter, chapter number five in the As I indicated a couple weeks ago, chapter 5 begins to open up a very systematic treatment of our understanding of Jesus Christ as a high priest. And it does so in order to compare Jesus' priesthood to the the Arianic or the Old Testament priesthood in order to demonstrate its superiority. And so we're going to lay a lot of groundwork today because from chapter 5 all through chapter 10, this motif, uh, young one's motif just meaning this theme, uh, this, this picture of a high priest that I've given you a picture of today in, in, in the summary sermon. You have that picture of that high priest and this idea of a high priest, this motif of a high priest, it runs from chapter 5 all the way down through chapter 10. It's kind of, you could say, a roadmap uh, for us to begin to consider the object of the confession that we've been admonished to hold to the very end by the inspired writer of Hebrews. The object of that confession, part and parcel of that confession, 
The center of that confession is our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this motif of the high priest is sort of a roadmap that goes from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 10. It outlines the three sections of uh, the chapters from 5 to 10 as we move forward. I give it to you in your sermon notes. Uh, Chapter 5 to really chapter 6 verse 20 deals with Christ as our high priest being the object of our confession of faith. And then in chapter 7, the motif of the high priest is approached from a different angle with articulating or focusing on Christ being a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then in chapter 8 to chapter 10, as you see, our road map takes us down a road as Christ, our high priest, mediating, or young ones, he's representing us as a high priest of a better covenant. And so that's kind of the road map we're going to be at for the next several months. And it's all under this umbrella or this understanding of Christ as a high priest. As I've alluded to, the purpose of the high priest groundwork that we have to lay today, the purpose of the high priest comparison that the inspired writer is going to initiate today, beginning in chapter 5, which he's already alluded to, is completely necessary because it helps us to understand the object of our faith, that is, Jesus Christ. In fact, not only does he begin the conversation, or you could say the comparison of this high priest analogy with our Lord Jesus Christ today, but he goes all the way to chapter 10, and by the time we get to chapter 10, it's going to be patently obvious, as one commentator observes, that, quote, Jesus' role as a great high priest, is regarded by this inspired writer to this uh, early Jewish church who was converted to Christianity as being in a comparative sense far, by far the most important of all of his works. As a priest, he made atonement for sin by the sacrifice of himself in regard which no angel, no prophet, no teacher, no other Arianical priest could ever compare with him. That's going to become patently obvious when we get to the very end toward chapter 10 of really analyzing the importance of the priesthood in comparison with Jesus Christ. Well, admitting this, admitting this importance of Jesus' office as a high priest in connection with what He is doing for us as His church, we must be as His church fixed and grounded in our thinking and our doctrine and in our worship because, as we just saw by the commentator, it directly draws our attention, our understanding, our heart's affection on His most monumentous work in His covenant scheme and mission as described in chapter 2, which was to give himself as a sacrifice for us. That was his covenant mission to glorify the agreement he made with the Father in eternity past. And the motif of the high priest, beloved, has everything to do with that. But while I do not know everything, I do know one certain thing, and that is There is no first century converted Jewish Christian in our sanctuary today. And furthermore, there is not in our sanctuary today, even any of you that come from an ethnic cultural background, 
where you once practiced Judaism and you're so you know, in tune with you know, the high priest and what he did and things like that. And you're probably thinking, you're tempted to think, how is this relevant to me? Young ones, you were given the picture and you're looking at that picture and you're thinking, Pastor Doug, how is this picture of this Old Testament, I put in your little note there, Bible times, this picture of this man dressed up in this interesting outfit, how does this relate to me as a young Christian? How does this relate to Jesus Christ? In other words, what's the relevancy that this inspired writer is about to enter into? And he's about to enter into it, as you see in the roadmap of the future chapters, for a good long while. What's the relevancy? I mean, it's, it's almost asking you what's the relevancy. As I was trying to think of an illustration, we have a, a, a machinist engineer in our midst, and he, he, his job is to poke holes in glass with surgical needles. Like, like, what's the relevancy to me of knowing how that's done? It's like if he starts talking about that, or if I say, what do you do for a living? He says, well, I poke hole in glass with surgical needles. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> and, you know, but, but it is relevant to you if you're flying in an airplane or if you're driving a vehicle of some sort. Because to my understanding, uh, thank you, Brother Aaron, I, that was the only illustration I could pull from how to compare the relevancy of Jesus being a high priest or comparison to Old Testament high priest to us 21st century Western Christians is because when you're flying in the airplane, you want it to work right, right? Because to my understanding, the pieces of glass that he uses surgical needles to poke holes in, they're somehow or another making that plane work. Well, to begin to answer the question of why Jesus' role as a high priest in comparison to the Old Testament high priest, is so relevant, it's really helpful to consider that portion of Scripture in Luke chapter 13, between verses 24 and 27. When our Lord Jesus had died, He was buried, and He rose again, and He had come back, and He was seen by thousands. And there were two particular disciples who were walking to Emmaus. And you remember the story, right? Jesus, the narrative, Jesus was walking with them. But he was hiding his true identity from them. And in verse 27, it tells us as he was walking with them and they were lamenting how that they perhaps were doubting the whole truth of the gospel and the truth of his messianic you know, coming because he wasn't with them anymore. And you know, they were still learning. The church was beginning to have its foundations laid with the resurrection of Christ. And what did Jesus do? Beginning with Moses, young ones, beginning with the Old Testament, and all of the different themes, motifs in the Old Testament, including the high priest and the temple and the sacrifices, Jesus, the text says, taught them about himself about himself. The most effective evangelism you could ever do is to not start with the New Testament, but start in the garden. You start in the garden and you begin to share with someone the fall, the plan of God to remedy the curse of sin and to forgive sin so mankind can come back into reconciliation with Him. And that, that story in Scripture, all of these Things, these themes that we see throughout the Old Testament, including the high priest, 
what God's doing for us and what the inspired writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 beginning today by really focusing and drawing our attention and the original audience attention on the high priest and why it's relevant is because it gives us categories. It gives us a context for understanding God's salvific plan. In other words, on the first week of creation, when Adam sinned, why couldn't God have just sent Jesus the very next day to take away all the sin? He, he didn't do that, did He? He took a thousand, couple thousand, several thousands of years to tell this long narrative. And in doing so, Scott, right? He's given us context to understand His holiness, His glory, and the separation of His holiness and His glory is, and glory and our separation from Him as sinful man. And He's showing us how there's a remedy and a way to come back to Him. That's what He's doing. And so the high priest motif, the theme, the the comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ has everything to do, has the utmost relevancy for us to properly understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And there are serious consequences when the modern day church says, ah, all that Old Testament categorizing, contextualizing, pointing for the shout, understanding all of that, eh, that's really not all that necessary. Because I have the New Testament, I have Jesus, and, and therefore I can rightly understand him. No, 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 no. No, no, no. You, 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 you really can't. You really can't. One of the consequences, brothers and sisters, of abandoning the witness, God's witness, we read it in Isaiah this morning, abandoning God's witness of giving us this contextualization for salvation leading to the coming kingly, priestly Messiah is that we begin to reinvent in our own understanding who Jesus is. And now that's why you have books today where Jesus is portrayed as a therapist, as your jogging coach. Or your wrestling champion guy who can help you get through and accomplish all things in his name. You know, you get into these silly understandings of who Jesus is. And the remedy to such silliness, still laying down the groundwork here in the intro to chapter number five of why it's so relevant and important for us to take the time with the author here, because it's scripture, and understand the high priest. The remedy to such silliness is to stick with and to teach what the Bible says about Jesus, especially when it deals with all these parallels with the high priest. I know that sounds simple to you. Pastor Doug, that's so simple. And it is very simple. But such simplicity of just sticking to what the Bible says in the Old Testament and the New Testament about the Messiah, the promised Messianic high priest promised, And in the New Testament, the Messianic high priest revealed and established. Such simplicity is often not good enough for the entertainment-driven Western church, is it? No, we must have a Jesus, and here's your favorite word, that's relevant. A Jesus that's trendy with whatever the social mood of of our culture is at whatever time. And so if male feminization is the popular kind of thing going on in culture, well, then we have to overemphasize Jesus' gentleness and lowliness and underemphasize his manliness 
His righteous anger, his cynicism against the religious hypocrites who existed in his time. See, we want to not talk about that. We want to emphasize his gentle lowliness. And we start writing these books and they, they get Jesus all misunderstood. The right approach to understanding Christ, it involves understanding the Old Testament witness of how God gave us a context and categories to understand this kingly, this kingly Messiah and priest and priest. How does he begin to do this? How does our inspired author begin to introduce us into this motif of Jesus being compared to uh, and put into this category of a high priest? Well, you see in your sermon notes, I believe that verses 1 through 4, what he does is he focuses the first century Jewish Christians who would have been intimately familiar with the need of having a high priest between them and God. This was part of their culture. This was part of their religion. They, they understood this. And so what he does in verses 1-4 through four is he focuses on the nature and the qualifications of the Levitical priesthood. So it's like he's giving them a refresher course. You know, of, of what it was that was required for a man to be, as AJ read in Matthew 26, a high priest. There were a lot of priests, but there was only one high priest. And so he gives, as if you could say, a, a job description of what this man had to be. And then he turns a corner in verses 5 and 6, and he shows how Jesus was a legitimate appointment to the priesthood. All right? So as we go into this, he first starts laying down the groundwork of what a priest had to be in the first place. The nature and the qualifications of a Levitical priest. Chapters 4, verses 4 and 16 that I started with when we read uh, the sermon text. It served as a wonderful and an encouraging conclusion after a much needed uh, beating up, you could say, uh, that we got in chapter 4. That uh, those, those exhortations and those warnings which climaxed in chapter 4, verses 11, 13, which reminded us of the all-powerful, the all-seeing I am God and how nothing can ever be hidden from Him. And so it gave us this wonderful encouragement that you have a high priest who's sympathetic, who invites you boldly to come to His throne of grace where He awaits you. They are willing to help you. But in addition, what those last few verses did, coming out of chapter 4 into chapter 5, it wonderfully set up as if it were an introduction to this expansive understanding of Jesus Christ as a high priest. And the writer begins this expansive lesson by focusing upon, as I mentioned, the nature and the qualification of the Levitical priesthood. And these would have been very familiar to the first century Jewish Christian who was listening. The first qualification we have immediately in verse number 1. The first qualification related to the nature of the high priest, we see it was for every high priest taken from among men. The word for here is serving to connect verse 1 with the previous context of the last few verses in chapter 4 regarding Jesus' humanity and in particular His ability to sympathize with us in our weaknesses and in our sufferings. Now on the surface, when we see this in verse 1, for every high priest is taken from, from men, we may be tempted to quickly dismiss it as something that's 
well, just kind of insignificant. Okay, it's a man. However, especially in light of verses 14 and 16, it, prof- it provides us with profound insight into why there was a necessity for the eternal Son to be incarnate as a man. Because we see here, beloved, in verse number 1, that an important aspect of the nature and the qualification of a Levitical high priest was that we, we could say he shared in our solidarity. He shared in our humanness. So, so children, in that way, um, uh, a high priest had to be a man because God wanted him to be able to share in our united cause, need, and purpose as fallen mankind. So he wanted the, the high priest to be, in other words, sympathetic with us. He wanted the Levitical high priest to have a shared solidarity. That's what we mean. This shared solidarity as a man allowed the Levitical high priest to know what it was like to grieve over a lost loved one. It, was, uh, it enabled him to understand how it was to seek to be holy and obey in the face of temptation towards sin. It was necessary, this shared solidarity, to experientially know what it was like to grow weary as a man to get wore down and even apathetic at times regarding the decline of society all around him. This aspect of the high priest's nature is also seen, look with me in verse number 2. When it says that he, the Levitical high priest himself also is, the authorized version says, compassed with infirmity. Some of the modern translations will translate it, the high priest, he himself is beset with weakness. But I believe here, when we understand the word rightly in our modern ears, the authorized version actually has a better translation. And here's why. The Greek word here that's being used, and it's translated compass, this high priest, this, 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 this man that was necessary, he was taken from men, who was quote-unquote compassed. Listen, this Greek word, it carries with it the idea of something that's hanging around somebody's neck. It's something, furthermore, that you not only have around your neck, but it's also something that weighs you down. It, it, it's something that hampers you. And that's why... In the four places in the New Testament where this Greek word is used, two of those times it's translated as hanged. And that amplifies for us the thought of this Levitical high priest taken from men who can really and truly relate to what it's like to be enclosed, to be encircled, to be hampered or bound literally or figuratively By having their humanness, in other words, their manness, their weakness, as if it were hanging around their necks. The high priest, like us, had a fallen humanness. And it hung around his neck like a chain. Yes, young ones, he had that splendor and that glorious outfit on the outside. But underneath all of that splendor, he was a man. And only a man. He was truly one that could recognize and sympathize with his other fallen men. I like how Dr. Robert Paul Martin in his commentary on Hebrews brings out the significance of this high priest being encompassed with 
his own infirmity. And the reason why God required it. He says, a man could not perform the duties of this office properly if that man could not enter in with the feelings of those whom he represented. If their sins stirred no sentiment within him, but only stirred within him disgust, disapproval, or apathy, he would not be fit to appear before God on their behalf. For he would not be sincerely inclined to do for his fellow man whatever was necessary for their forgiveness of sin and their acceptance of worship before God. All of that, this requirement of this first qualification of the high priest, the Levitical high priest, having to be a man, makes it very clear why the angels who we talked about a lot in chapters 1 and 2, could never serve as a high priest. They did not share in man's common infirmities, which so easily encompasses us, amen? And therefore, they could not in sincerity come before God's throne of grace and plead for forgiveness. They could never relate to it. They don't know why you fallen human beings act the way you do. We mentioned it when we were going through chapters 1 and 2. The angels in many regards look down at us as much less. They can't figure out why God loves us so much. I mean, there's the law. Don't do this. Do that. What's wrong with you humans? (laughs) It's black and white. The first qualification that the inspired writer is impressing upon them in the Levitical priesthood, he wants to remind them was that the Levitical high priest had to share and the shared solidarity of being a man. And the necessity and the importance of the high priest humanness, would you agree it's further clarified by another aspect of a qualification that he must possess? We see it in verse 2. Because he had to be someone who could have compassion on the ignorant. Compassion on the ignorant and those, he needed to have compassion on those who are out of the way. And so the second descriptive or the second aspect of the nature or qualification of the Levitical high priest is that he had to show compassion. His humanness could allow him to sincerely be moved with compassion upon those who were ignorant. He didn't look at them as as disdain. Even though he was held up in this honorable position appointed by God, we'll see in a moment, Nolan, when the high priest saw the, the sins of someone who had never been instructed, who had never been taught, he didn't look at them like the Pharisees that I, uh, I, AJ was talking about in Matthew 26 today with disgust and with pride and self-righteousness. No, he looked at them with sympathy and compassion. The high priest, due to his own infirmities, was not unduly disturbed by the errors and the faults and the sins of others. He would see them and he would bear with the people. He would be long-suffering with the people. I mean, you could almost see the, the imagery of the high priest talking to the husband in the village for the 50th time. The law of God. The love of God. The way of God. Is this. Is this. Is this. 
Oh, but high priest. I this. I can't that. You see. And he's going to be what? I've had enough of you. I just can't bear with you anymore. No, as long as there was a trace of repentance and a willingness to come under the authority of God's law and God's word, the high priest didn't look on him with disgust. He what? The text tells us. He showed compassion. Or some translations have it showed gentleness. Now, let's be clear about something here in the text where it says ignorance. He was to have compassion on the ignorant. By ignorant, the text is not referring to a people's IQ. It's not referring to a a, a lack of higher learning. That's not what the ignorance is talking about there. It's referring to those who truly have a fear of the Lord, but who do sin because of a lack of instruction. That's what the ignorance is talking about. We know that because in the book of Numbers chapter 15, there's a description of this reality of those who do sin out of ignorance and who God recognized they sinned out of ignorance and He provided a sacrifice for their sins due to the lack of instruction. And I want to be very clear what we see in that. And that recognition of God, that there was sin committed by lack of instruction, it doesn't get excused. It's not as though it's a less offensive sin to God. But it is one that has to be atoned for. And there was an atonement that the high priest brought for those who committed sins of ignorance out of lack of instruction. They brought it year by year. I've given it to you in your sermon notes. One of the most, I think, clearest examples we have of this is from the Apostle Paul himself, admitting that he sinned out of ignorance. Look at 1 Timothy 1, 12 and 13. Paul, really exalting the grace of Christ upon him who deserved no grace. He says, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, And furthermore, a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The immediate application, I think, for us of this observation and this second qualification of the high priest is, of course, that everyone will not be able to claim innocence on the great day of judgment because they'll say, well, no one ever taught me about the truth of God. No, that's not the case. We're to be a compassion on them. We're to be gentle but we're supposed to instruct, but we're supposed to teach. No, my friend, and those who may be listening to this, you cannot stand before on the great day of judgment before God and say, well, no one ever told me. Because you will only demonstrate as a reprobate the power of the deceitfulness of sin in your life and your continued willful rejection of God as your Creator and the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if it's not, as Paul was saying in 1 Timothy If it's not His intervening of His electing love, it will lead your rejection, your sin. As we noticed Isaiah admitting, it was His own sin that caused the hardness of their heart. And He was pleading for the intervening grace of God. That's what will condemn someone to hell. Not because someone didn't tell them. They didn't want to be told. They didn't want to search the truth. However, those, as our text here is talking about, who have tasted the truth, and they have 
truly out of ignorance, gone out of the way. They are faithfully attended to by those who in the Levitical priesthood were sympathetic. They were long-suffering. And at this point, seeking to further establish and to build up our biblical category of the Levitical high priest. Before we even get down to verses 5 and 6, we see a third qualification. Notice in verse 1 and in verse 4 also, the Levitical high priest was not a self-appointed man. He didn't make himself a high priest. Notice verse 1 says that this man, this Levitical high priest, he was ordained for men and the things pertaining to God. Verse 4, further clarification, more plainly, No man takes this honor to himself, but he that is called of God. This office and this role of a high priest was a position of great honor. And of course, since its inception by the wisdom and by the plan of God, back in Exodus 28, under the Mosaic Covenant, it was an appoint of office by God, which was divinely called and only through the sons of Aaron. When we get to the Melchizedek, we'll touch on the fact that Samuel was not in the line of Aaron and he was called by God. But we'll deal with that later. But the point was, is that these guys had to be from the lineage of Aaron to be a high priest. I've given it to your notes. It's a summary of this truth in Numbers 3.10. Thou shalt appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall wait on their priest's office. Now here's what I want to draw to your attention. And the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. Beloved, this God-appointed method to the priesthood all throughout redemptive history was consistently and jealously guarded by God. There wasn't a volunteer system, as I said. There wasn't an egalitarian, democratically elected system to bring the high priest. It had to be through the sons of Aaron, and God appointed the high priest. Notice in your sermon notes, wherever we had examples of people who tried to do it their way, they were dealt with very severely. We remember, do we not, in Numbers 16, verses 1-11, through the story of the sons of Korah who looked at Aaron, who looked at Moses and said, what makes you guys so holy? We're holy too. Why can't we do what you guys do? Why can't we put ourselves in this position? That's a wonderful passage of Scripture. And the ground children, God was so um, um, infuriated with the rebellion that the sons of Korah demonstrated of wanting to do it their way the ground opened up and swallowed them whole. What about 1 Samuel chapter 13, where King Saul, after his own fleshly impatience, he acted as a self-appointed priest and he offered sacrifice unto God. Again, doing it his way, appointing himself to be a priest. And we remember what Samuel told him, you have done a foolish thing. You have done a foolish thing, appointing yourself to be a priest. That's God's appointment. God has a pattern. He has a way for it. And you've done a foolish thing. He goes on to say, you have not kept the commandment the Lord your God gave you. And then the sad account we recall of 2 Chronicles chapter 26 outlines another instance where a proudful man, King Uzziah, acted as a self-appointed priest and God judged him with leprosy. Beloved, this God-appointed nature and qualification of the Levitical high priest It can be very helpful to us when we observe two things. God's appointment of Levitical high priests gives us two lessons that we can't lose sight of as a a church. Here's the first one. By God appointing a high priest to compassionately perform His work, 
God demonstrates something very important to us, which is this. God's chosen redemptive interactions with us as mankind is accomplished through a representative. That's important. God appointed mediator high priest to come between us and Himself teaches us one important aspect as we're trying to get under our feet and further establish biblical categories and biblical contexts. It gives us this important lesson. God appointed them, sister, to show us that He has a way by which fallen man is going to be represented unto Himself. Ding, ding, ding. We make a note of that. Interesting, isn't it? That after the fall in the garden, by which the sins of mankind necessarily distanced themselves from their holy creator, God immediately and subsequently utilizes covenantal arrangements with who? Appointed men. Didn't He? Noah. Made a covenant with Noah. Then He makes a covenant with Abraham. And He goes on through redemptive history. And He's using and He's showing us a pattern. That there's going to be a way by which you will know my will and how to worship me. My will for you as fallen man and how I wish to be worshipped. And I'm going to communicate that to you through a representative. This is what the whole God appointed to the Levitical priesthoods, helping us see as we're establishing our categories. This is God's way. In other words, we don't do things like the sons of Korah our way. We have to do it God's way. This observation is significant, especially in light of what the writer has already communicated to us in chapter 2, verse 17, where he said, In all things it behooved Jesus to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest. They would have been like, oh, high priest, yeah. Representative, meteor, a mediator between us and God. How was he made the high priest? Because he's not a son of Aaron. The author said, in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. The appointed high priest motif, which runs all throughout Scripture, we now see prepares us to more fully comprehend, helps us more fully appreciate the covenant headship of Jesus for His church. God is showing us He appoints men in relationships with himself, in order to act as our representative. Moses was the covenant head for the Mosaic Covenant, that arrangement, a temporary arrangement that God had with these people to move them forward in redemptive history, further establishing categories, further establishing uh, the context for the need of the Messiah. And then he comes to the New Testament Abbey and he says, ah, now I'm going to show you how the Messiah is a king and a high priest and he's a covenant federal head, a representative of you, my children, my elect church. This is what's all coming together here in Hebrews. All these motifs, all these themes of the Old Testament are wonderfully being brought together by the inspired writer. But there's a second thing of the God-appointed means and nature and qualification of the high priest that we want to notice. Not only does it show us this idea that God relates to fallen man through representatives, but also by God appointing a high priest, 
It shows us that no man can appoint himself to be a high priest. It further establishes for us what we see all throughout redemptive history, a theological term that we use a lot called the regulative principle of worship. In other words, we don't do whatever we want to do in regards of how we want to worship God. This shows us a picture of that. You see, God has a pattern and He has requirements for certain things related to His church. Officers in His church and the worship that He commands from His church. And we are to obey it. And when we don't, it doesn't go unnoticed by God. So this aspect of the nature and the qualification, thirdly, of a Levitical high priest of being God-appointed, shows us those two important things. That God requires a mediator between Himself and fallen man, and that He has a, a, a structure and a command and a picture of how He wants us to obey and to worship Him. Well, all of this talk now of worship and representation by a Levitical high priest naturally leads us to consider the fourth aspect of the nature and the qualification of a Levitical high priest, which you see he is to offer sacrifices for sin. You see it in verse 2. It says that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Most theologians agree that that is uh, not two separate things, but describing one thing in two ways, gifts and sacrifices. So we don't need to get down in the, lost in the trenches of what's a gift and what's a sacrifice. Okay, it, It's him saying the same thing. And then in verse 3, this nature of qualification of what it took to be a Levitical high priest is brought forward clearly when it says, He ought as for the people, so also for himself offer sin. Here in this fourth qualification of Levitical high priest, in his role of offering sacrifice for sin, I think we indeed get to the very center or what we might call the most powerful parallel with our Lord Jesus Christ as a high priest. And that is, as a covenant representative, as a mediatorial representative between us and God, He is the one, like the Levitical high priest, who made the appropriate and the required sacrifice to accomplish the forgiveness. It's perhaps helpful for us here to consider at this point under the Mosaic Covenant that there were a lot of occasions throughout the year when the priest would make voluntary sacrifices and when they would make mandatory sacrifices. The voluntary sacrifices throughout the year in the liturgical calendar through festivals and such, such and so on included burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, peace offerings. And these voluntary sacrifices, they were to demonstrate a devotion or a commitment to God, such as the burnt offering. Uh, the grain offering was their way to express to God how thankful we are for your blessings upon us. Those were voluntary sacrifices. But... There were two under the Mosaic Covenant law that God required that would take place every year. And that was the mandatory sacrifices. The mandatory sacrifices that were required was the sin offering. And that happened on a special day known as the Day of Atonement or in Hebrew, the Yom Kippur. The sin offering and the other was the trespass offering. The sin offering based on a person's financial situation, they would be required to bring a young bull a goat, 
a dove or a pigeon or a one-tenth ephah of fine flour based on their, their ability to do so financially. And the majority of theologians and commentators agree that the inspired writer in our text today, when he's talking about the role of the Levitical high priest offering sacrifice for sin, is not talking about those voluntary sacrifices. He's talking about the sacrifice on the day of the atonement for sin, the Yom Kippur. They believe that he's referring here to the high priest's work on that special day of atonement. And before entering the tabernacle, young ones, you have that picture of the high priest. Before he put on all those garments, the high priest was to bathe himself, and then he would put on all that special garment, all representing different things. And then he would sacrifice a bull for a sin offering for himself. Because remember, he was a man, a fallen man. And he would sacrifice it for his family. This is all recorded for us in the book of Leviticus. And then the blood of the bull would be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. Then Aaron, he would bring forth, the high priest would bring forth two goats to be sacrificed. One because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins would have been. And then the other would be a scapegoat that he would let go in the wilderness after he placed all the sins of the people through prayer, a a ceremonial service upon the goat. They would be released. And that would go on year after year. So the qualification of here of the Levitical high priest going into the temple year after year to do this sacrifice for the sin of the people forces us to consider and apply two truths that we see in his work as a high priest. The first truth that we want to recognize and we want to seek to apply is that we have a desperate need for forgiveness as man. Why in this Old Testament narrative and the motif of showing the high priest was he ever required? Because we're sinners. All of us are sinners. And as sinners, we need a mediator. God was showing us we need someone to go on our behalf and make a sacrifice for our sins so that they could be forgiven. And now we look back and we're like, oh, it's making sense. You see, he's creating these contexts of understanding. If you don't think you're a sinner, if you're that blinded about your own sinfulness, I'd suggest you read Romans 3.23, 1 John 1.8, Ecclesiastes 7.20. Start there and then go other places. And I think that by God's grace, the Spirit will reveal to you through the truth that you are a sinner and you need forgiveness. And God, the second point we want to seek to apply and recognize uh, by the work of the high priest is God's mercy and His willingness to to provide forgiveness for your sins. That's what that shows us. This work, this nature of the qualification of the high priest. We see that God was merciful and willingness to forgive their sins. Although sin had separated them from their holy and sinless Creator, He not only appointed covenant mediators, high priests, by which His will and His worship could be known by the people, but He also provided through the sin, I'm, I'm sorry, He also provided, because of their sins, a sacrifice to remove the guilt of their sins, but not finally remove His anger of the sins. Important distinction. Because as the Levitical priesthood under the Old Covenant would come year after year, Nolan, to offer these sacrifices which demonstrated the mercy of God and His willingness to forgive their sins, they were only what we call an an expiation. 
I'm butchering that word, but it's a theological word. Here's what it means. It means to remove the guilt of that sin, but not the anger of God against the sin. You remember when we were back in chapter 2, we crossed that word reconciliation. And that Greek word reconciliation carried with it the idea of what we say in theology. Trying to, What is theology? It's just trying to con- convey truths from the Bible. It conveyed what we call propitiation. The reconciliation that Jesus did with his sacrifice not only removed the guilt of our sins, oh, but it propitiated the anger and the wrath of God. And so in the old covenant, yes, there was a sacrifice for sins. And it was merciful that God would do that. But it was required to show them they had to do it year by year by year because the Messiah had not arrived. And so as God's continuing to set up these contexts and these categories to help them understand who the Messiah is and the significance of his work, when he comes, the writer of Hebrews teaching us, as Jesus declared on the cross, when he gave his life for the sacrifice, the expiation, and the propitiation of sin, he said what? Say it together. It is finished. Thank you, brother. Amen. It was finished. That's the difference. That's what God was trying to see. He was pointing them to that. The sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed forward to the perfect and the final sacrifice of Christ. And that was the purpose and the nature of this work of the Levitical high priest. To show that. As with the rest of the law, his sacrifices that he did year by year on Yom Kippur, as taught in Colossians 2.7, was a shadow of the things that were to come, the reality which were to be found in Christ. And we as God's people today, we recognize that Christ's atoning death on the cross, it only needed to be done once and for all. Hebrews 10, 1 through verse 10. And by His death, we have access to God our Father through our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. However, as a side note, speaking of Yom Kippur, speaking of Levitical priesthood, etc., etc., Jews today, to this very day, those who practice Judaism, they further demonstrate their rejection of their Messiah by still celebrating this annual Day of Atonement, which falls on a couple of days each year between September and October. And they do it by intense prayer to God for their Messiah. May we pray for the salvation of Israel. Well, thus far, beloved, we have considered four aspects of the Levitical priesthood in verses 1-4. through four. We, He had to be a man. Secondly, he had to be compassionate. Thirdly, he had to be appointed by God. Fourthly, he had to make sacrifice for the sins of his people and for himself. And here's where we think to ourselves, and you know you've already been thinking it. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The reasons we're thinking uh-oh is because we're logically following the rhetorical argument of the inspired writer and how he's employing the Old Testament high priesthood motif as a parallel with Jesus' high priest. But he just got done telling us, didn't he? In chapter 4, verses 14 and 16, that Jesus was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. And that's why verse 3 causes us a little problem. Why? Is that there? Well, here's why I think. And we have to stop and ask ourselves that question. 
Because it perfectly sets up what he will further expound in chapter 7, which is the fact that Jesus' sinlessness is a further demonstration of his superiority to Jesus' priesthood and the superiority of the covenant that he represents. So the reason it's okay for him to bring this before their minds and remind them of the the roles, the function, and the nature of the Levitical high priest, and it was okay to say, yeah, they had to sacrifice for sins for themselves because he just got done telling them Jesus was sinless, i.e. a much better priest. It's setting up for what he's going to continue to do, exalt the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. But before getting there in chapter 7, now in verses 5 and 6, and I promise this will be brief, he now shows us how Jesus legitimately is a priest. He's talked much, you know, in his comparison with Moses as a prophet, how when he called Jesus the apostle of the faith, How that he was a superior prophet. And you remember in chapter 1, how he demonstrated that Jesus' revelation, final revelation, was a superior revelation to even that of the divine angels. Well, now he's going to show here that Jesus is a much more, he's going to begin to show us a much more superior priest who they knew was necessary to help them come to God. These first century converted Jews, they knew. It was, in, it was ingrained in them. Rightfully so. It was rightfully so ingrained in them. Because ever since little children, they were brought up under these motifs and these categories. And when they come to the Gospel, they knew, and He's reminding them, because some are being tempted to go back, He's reminding them, you have a high priest. Oh, you need a high priest. You're right, you do. And He is the most eminent high priest. So let me show you. So he's qualified the nature of a high priest. And now he's going to show him Jesus is a priest. Appointed by who? God. That's what we see. To demonstrate Jesus as a legitimate high priest, the inspired writer, once again, he goes back to two of his favorite psalms so far that he's demonstrated in the book of Hebrews. Psalms 2, and he goes back to Psalms 110. And beloved, this use of the Old Testament by the inspired writer in Hebrews is a classic example of how the New Testament interprets for us the Old Testament. Here's what I'm saying. Under divine inspiration, the writer to Hebrews is telling these first century converted Jews that these Psalms, Psalms 2-7 and Psalms 110 verse 4, were speaking of Jesus. That's what he's saying. And thus, he as God's own son, Psalms 2, has an appointment not only as a king. Many remember confused and think that's talking about an an earthly Jewish king. We already covered that ground. Psalms 2 is talking about Christ. It was penned by David, the scripture teaches us, and it was prophesying about King Jesus. As God's own son has been given an appointment unto the messianic kingship, setting upon the throne now, also, we're being taught here that he's appointed to a priesthood by utilizing Psalms 110 in verse 6. Verse 5. Look at verse 5. So also, he built the case in verse 4 of what a Levitical high priest had to have. Now he says, so also Christ glorified not himself. He didn't glorify himself and he never sought to bring glory to himself. 
which is another example of how he's demonstrated he was appointed by God his Father. And if anyone had any reason to glorify himself, beloved, wouldn't it be the Lord Jesus Christ? But he he draws to the attention of his humbleness, of his obedient, uh, sacrificial demonstration of submissiveness to the will of the covenant mission to come and to save sinners as a sacrificial high priest. And he's going to expand on that next week of how he learned obedience. Interesting phrase. Can't wait to get in that. The book of Hebrews is awesome. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he, here's Psalms 2-7, he that said unto him, thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. So it's like he's looking to his first century Jewish friends and he's saying, guys, Yes, a high priest had to come and be appointed by God as from a son of Aaron. But don't you see Jesus Christ? He's the only begotten son of Almighty God. If anybody's appointed, rightly appointed, Abby, legitimately appointed as a high priest, wouldn't it be God's own son? Which supersedes any of Aaron's sons. But you see, he's working within the categories of salvation that God was pointing through the whole time, and they would have said, ah, yes, yes. Yeah, why am I being tempted to go back and, and, and bring sacrifices to a man born through Aaron to offer for me? I have Christ, God's own Son, who is my high priest. But finishing up here, we want to draw attention to verse number 6. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalms 110.4 speaks of the Messianic king's appointment to the priesthood. However, it's not an appointment you see in verse 6 after the order of Aaron's priesthood, but in the order or the manner of someone named Melchizedek, who he's already mentioned a couple times, this mysterious figure in the Bible. This, the Melchizedek priesthood, it's an order of priesthood that is a king priesthood. And it's going to be fleshed out later on. This priesthood, this order of priesthood in Scripture has only two names associated with it. Melchizedek and Jesus. The Melchizedek motif theme, which has already been typified in Hebrews, has already been talked about and mentioned, It's going to be further fleshed out in chapter 7. So we're not going to spend a lot of time here today on that. However, though, for our purposes today, in what the writer's trying to do to show how Jesus is at a legitimate appointment to the priesthood, let's notice this. The original Jewish audience would have been very familiar with this psalm. Psalm 110.4. They would have also been very familiar with Zechariah 6 and the prophecy of Zechariah 6. Psalms 110.4, Zechariah 6, both are prophesying about in the Messiah how the royal kingly function of the Messiah and the priestly function of the Messiah will be together in one person. And thus the inspired writer here is wonderfully, theologically crafting for them a proper understanding of who Jesus is and what He has done as both a king and a priest who has been given to them to worship, 
to bring and uh, uh, their needs to as a high priest and be their covenant representative, their mediator, their representative to God. Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, is going to begin to work in this high priestly motif from here forward is going to argue that Jesus is the promised, indeed, the fulfilled King, Messiah, and Priest. He has come, He has been arguing. He has accomplished His priestly work of sacrifice for sin, Hebrews chapter 2, once and for all. And now He continues as our covenant mediator, our covenant high priest between us and our God. So for closing thoughts and applications. Maybe someone listening to this message or even here today, lest we be deceived, could be thinking, which is very, very popular in the Western American church, I can worship God my own way. I can come to God in my own way. Most people you ask on the streets, do you, where are you going to think you go when you die? I think I'm going to go to heaven. Why are you going to get to heaven? Well, because, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I pay my taxes, so forth, so that kind of stuff, you know. Um, beloved, every single person has to come through a mediator to make sacrifices for their sins. Isaiah said it in Isaiah 64 this morning. And anyone who could be so deceived in thinking that they have one ounce of righteousness, know that the Word of God tells you your righteousness is as filthy rags. And I had to, it's so uncomfortable for a pastor to <laughs> extrapolate what those filthy rags are, but I did so to heighten the, 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 the grossness, the weakness, the insufficiency of any of our good deeds. We have to have a sacrifice. And dear sinner friend, all of the sacrifices through the Old Testament were showing you, showing me, that God requires an atonement for those sins. And the glorious good news of the Gospel that's being proclaimed today and being laid bare before you is that Jesus Christ has taken your sins upon yourself as the great high priest once and for all. And so the Gospel cry goes out. Come. Come and receive forgiveness of sins through how? Not your righteousness, but through the mediatorial blood of Jesus Christ and all of God's people say Christ and Christ alone. And so a closing thought for us as Christ's people. This is your mediator. This is your high priest. We sung, O sacred head, how wounded. You hear in that song, do you not? The, the, the grind, the, 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 the hardness of the pilgrim journey. And you hear in that song, don't you? Oh, high priest Jesus, forget me not. Even on my dying bed, help me not be separated from Thy enduring love. Oh, dear Christian, if the book of Hebrews doesn't excite you, and even all this talk and intricacies about the high priest motifs, Man, check your pulse. Because it gets ten times better after this. Especially next week when we understand how the Lord Jesus learned obedience through His tears. Through His tears. All of this perfectly sets us up. Does it not to come to the Lord's table in a moment and remember what our high priest did for us? Brother Aaron, so that we have access to our Father once again. That our sins, our iniquities separated us from Him. Let us close with a word of prayer.
Dear Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for thy appointed high priest, the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is in so many ways that we shall explore in the coming months, so more superior, greater. It's almost even embarrassing to compare him to the Arianic priesthood, but understanding just the argument of what the writer is trying to accomplish, Lord. We do understand his argument, and we see that it was necessary to use those old covenant analogies and motifs and examples to see how they all were pointing to the glorious Fulfilled Messiah, King, Priest, Jesus Christ. Thank you that all of our hope, all of our care, all of our rest is dependent upon Him. And help us, O Lord, we pray, through the weakness of our own flesh, the devil in this world, that nothing would rob us of the joy, of the certainty we know we have in our High Priest, Jesus Christ. Bless us as we approach our supper in a moment. And O God, prepare us. Watch over us and bring us back safely next Lord's Day, we pray. In Jesus' holy name we ask these things. Amen.